Amen. Our reading from God's holy word comes from Psalm 133. Psalm 133, a psalm of David, a song of ascents. Please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head, running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. You may be seated. Father, we rejoice in this, your word. It's given to us for life, for us to be fed, to be strengthened on. It is more necessary than any food that we have ever received, especially more necessary than the physical uh, food that we have uh, likely received already this day in some portion. This is spiritual food, and our souls can't live without your word. And so we would ask, Lord, that you would now, through the power of the Holy Spirit, set this word apart in our own hearts, make space for it. That we might nourish it, be nourished on it. That we might be strengthened by its teaching. That we might be changed and walk in a newness of life. Come and give us the good and pleasant unity that David speaks of here. Even as we attend to the unity that is ours in Christ Jesus. We ask all this in his holy name. Amen. I'd love for you to just picture the people of Israel coming from their various home places, from the north, from the south, from the east, from the west, coming in some cases for very long distances with packed donkeys and children underfoot and servants along the way, maybe traveling with a caravan of friends and Neighbors, maybe stopping off at people's homes as they go along various places that they've been many times before because three times a year they make this journey for the annual feast there in Jerusalem. It's likely they would see familiar faces on the road and meet up with old neighbors and, and friends. And as they did so, they would stop at probably maybe their normal exits off the interstate, uh, get their rest, grab a little something to eat, make a pit stop. Uh, At night, they would bed down, maybe throw up a tent or something and build a fire, tell some stories, catch up on lost time and sing these songs, sing these songs. Psalm 133 would be on the lips of the people of Israel as they made these journeys at least three times a year for the annual feasts there in Jerusalem. They would sing how good and pleasant it is for brothers and sisters 
to dwell together in unity. David being the author of this particular psalm, it's, it's unusual in its structure because it doesn't speak directly of, of God. Um, it doesn't focus on God, either his character or his person. It actually looks out at the people. It's considering the people. And them streaming in, as it were, from varieties of roads in every direction toward Jerusalem. I imagine David, though we don't know the moment in which he was writing this particular psalm, I can imagine him as someone who's maybe king by this point, maybe standing on the palace uh, balcony, looking out at the various roads coming in to Jerusalem and seeing these pilgrims having made this long distance and say with exclamation, how good and pleasant it is when brothers and sisters dwell together in unity. Thinking about that annual feast, thinking about the time in which now they are coming to Jerusalem. It's interesting that in the psalm, he doesn't give us a command to unity. Now, there's important commands that we'll actually touch on in the time that we're going to spend in the psalm, but it's really a proclamation, a kind of proclamation, if I can put it this way, with an exclamation. He just simply is reveling in the fact that the people of God are unified. And he's expressing what the experience of unity feels like. He's actually getting in the skin of the experience of unity. And he says to us, it is good and it is pleasant. Now when you hear those words, good and pleasant, you might think as you read through them, well, that's two ways of essentially saying the same thing. We actually use the language in that way, we might say, oh, that meal was really, really good. And what we mean is it was, it was pleasant. It was satisfying. It gave me delight or it gave me joy. And that's exactly what the word pleasant means here. You've probably had that experience where you've gathered with friends around a, a, a dinner table. And maybe they've been friends you haven't seen in a while. And as you have the pot roast and the mashed potatoes and the green beans sitting there in the middle of that table and you go, because it's pre-COVID days, you go to reach out for their hands and pray. And before you do, you look around the table and you take in their eyes and their faces and you think to yourself how good and pleasant it is to dwell together in unity. That's his experience of pleasantness that David has in mind here. Now, that language of good, however, is not merely a synonym. The language of good actually carries moral freight in the Hebrew. It carries the idea of something being right, something being in an objective way right. Meaning it's not just that I particularly like this thing, it's my preference but that God has declared this to be good. It is a staid reality. And when we read it in that way and we understand how he is saying it is good, meaning to declare God's benediction over it. And to me it is pleasant. It is joy-filling and delightful. He's bringing together the recognition of heaven and earth. He's bringing together the recognition of experience and truth. 
He's bringing together the idea of life and love among the people of God. And in doing that, he's calling us to love what he loves. The moral obligation to look and to pursue for unity among the body of Christ. That we should be a people who can say with our God, it is good that we would dwell together in unity together. Now, I think that's particularly important and appropriate in the day and time in which uh, we live, but even maybe particularly true for churches. Churches, believe it or not, are places sometimes not known for unity. Let's be honest about that. More than likely, every one of us here in this room could give a remembrance or a reflection about a time that was less than savory. We wouldn't use the language of pleasant and good to describe the quality of fellowship we may have enjoyed within that uh, very body. We recognize those hurts are often with us. And it's not true to the nature of what God has actually called us to be as his people. Sin is still very much present within the body of Christ, and it causes fracture. And it causes a rupture. But it shows us that God actually wants us to aspire and to pursue, get this, as a moral priority, unity among the body of Christ. As a moral priority, as unity among the body of Christ. Now, I noted in the earlier services there was a a friend of mine who ran against this, and I think it probably illustrates what some of you have likely experienced among churches, but he was a stated supply minister for a short period of time for two churches in the lovely state of Alabama. Two small churches, one church had seven members. Uh, the other church had ten members. You thought our gathering was small this morning. Oh no, his gatherings were smaller than these. Um, seven members in one, ten and in another, and he would preach at nine o'clock on one of those churches, and then he would drive 12 minutes down the road to the other church and preach at 10.30, the very same sermon. After about a month of serving as stated supply, he pulled one of the elders aside and asked the commonsensical question, you both have facilities that are large enough to house 17 people. Have you considered the possibility of coming together as one church? And of course, that elder looked at him like he had tusk growing out of his forehead and then immediately began to tell him the history of all the troublemakers in that other church and what led long ago to the split between these churches some 20 or 25 years ago with crystal clear perception. He could remember those things which had happened. You probably know stories like that. Maybe some of you have lived the stories like that. Truth be told, our tradition, even in Presbyterianism, is known for a good bit of that. If you look back over the history of Presbyterianism, especially the American scene of Presbyterianism, we have oftentimes been a people who have not uh, pursued unity as what we might call a moral priority but have instead opted maybe for a, a more trigger-happy approach to dividing, more looking to divide as an initial impulse rather than recognizing division as a kind of last resort at the time in which every other avenue has been sought out. 
Now, there are times, for those of you who may be fearful or concerned of what may be implied in what is unsaid in the things that are being said now, there are times, of course, where we should break with association and fellowship. Maybe for good doctrinal or spiritual or character and corruption reasons. Undoubtedly, that has been the case in many of the instances of divisions that have happened even within our own tradition, but not all of them. In fact, many of them wouldn't pass, I would dare say, what I'm going to call the Ephesians 4 test. Now, what is the Ephesians 4 test, you ask? Well, Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 3, read this way. I, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you, this is Paul speaking, to walk in a manner that is worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility, with patience, bearing with one another in love, Listen to this, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Eager to maintain. Notice his appeal to the heart and the energy and momentum of the heart's priority. To think in moral importance of maintaining spiritual unity. Of walking together in what is already, notice it's already happened, the Apostle Paul says, is a bond of peace. It's been given to us in Christ. Now as I cite that verse and as you consider patience, humility, bearing with, literally translated put up with, bearing with people in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, maybe you're asking yourself, well how, how could the church, how could God's people like us, how could we become those people? How could it be more characteristic of us that we are less divisive and more unified in spirit and bond of peace, certainly reflective in a world where there is tremendous conflict in our own day and time? Well, I want to give you two sentences. Two sentences before we return to Psalm 133 to unpack this a little bit more. These two sentences, I think, kind of give us some direction on the kind of unity that I think the Lord would call us to. Because it's not any kind, just any kind of unity that he's calling to. He's calling to us a particular kind of unity. And, and here's, the, here's the first of these sentences. By how do we become these kind of people? Here's number one. By letting what unifies us unify us. By letting what unifies us Unify us. Let me ask you this question. Why are you here? What brings you into this room? What is the unity that gathers us? Well, it is the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is our unity. We've got to let what unifies us unify us. All right? Secondly, by not letting what divides us or what doesn't unify us cause us division. By not letting what doesn't unify unify us cause division. There's a lot of things in this room that the various people in this room may believe, may prioritize, may want or desire that are vastly different from the other people in this room, that wouldn't get us all in this room. What gets us in this room? 
What causes the people of Israel from all the different tribes and backgrounds and experiences and vocations? What causes them to all flood into Jerusalem like streams from the four winds? Their priority of God's redemption. He has made them his people. He has unified them in his grace. When you realize that what unifies us must unify us, if we allow that to be the priority in our relationships, the way that we engage with one another, what begins to happen is the things that are different about us or don't unify us take a very back seat to the priority of that unity with Christ. And thus they are not a priority for division. It causes us ruptures within the body of Christ. You see, unity is only as strong as the thing which unifies you. Unity is only as strong as the thing which unifies you. Now, think about this. Christy and I were at a concert a couple of years ago. Do you remember these things? We used to have them, concerts. You gather as groups and listen to an artist. We, we gathered with thousands of other people. Um, and we were singing at the top of our lungs. We're having the greatest time. We're all just like one big, happy 20,000-member family uh, there at the concert. Wonderful, wonderful time. What united us at that gathering? Why did, we, why did we spend money and pilgrim our way to a venue in, in order to, to be gathered with those people? Common love for music. Co- common appreciation for that artist. You know, I love in those venues, whether it's a college football game or a concert or whatever it is, you look out and you see the people, they're cheering and they're all on the same page. It's wonderful, right? They're just, oh, this is a beautiful picture of, you know, we're all loving the right things. It's kind of what it feels like and looks like in that moment. And then, and then you know what happened in that event? The music stopped and we all went home. And I've never gathered with those people again. Now, Why? Because the thing that unified us was no longer unifying us. It had stopped. It it had gone away. We went from being a community, a a common unity around this music, around this artist. We went from being a community to a crowd. To, To a group that after the music was over, we really didn't have anything to say to each other. We just went back to our car and drove away. We've got to be unified in what unifies us. What actually brings us together? Why are we actually here? Why are we in the room? And can the thing that unifies us actually keep us together? When the music stops. When the thing stops. In some ways, that's a test of our own time, isn't it? No no matter what communities or neighbors or organizations you've been a part of, they've been unsettled and upset and turned upside down by our current circumstances of which we're in. And then sometimes when we're in those circumstances, we realize, I'm not as unified as I thought I was. And when we see, we see distinction and we see maybe, maybe division and, we're, and, and rupture can easily happen. Because maybe the thing that unified us was familiarity. Routine, certain forms, certain emphases, but it wasn't the unity that was Christ, right? 
wasn't really the person in the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. In Psalm 133, we have two analogies that are given to us to actually describe this kind of unity. It's actually a very simple psalm. It's that proclamation with an exclamation there in verse 1. And then in verses 2 and 3, there's, a, there's two similes given. This unity is like, he says, a precious oil. It's like a precious oil. And then in verse 3, it is like the dew of Hermon. Now, when you hear that it is like a precious oil, I don't want you to go thinking about that bottle of canola oil in your cupboard or you know, in the supermarket. I mean, that's not what we have in mind here. The context of this is an anointing oil, right? This is, a, this is an oil that flows down of the head, even on the beard, we're told, even on the collars of the robe. It's an anointing oil, and it's the particular anointing oil that actually is set aside for the high priest. We know that because who is referenced here? Aaron is referenced in verse 2. He is the first among a long list of Levitical priests. He was the older brother of Moses. You'll remember he was the mouthpiece of Moses when they were in the midst of the exodus. The high priest was the chief religious office in Israel. He was the only one who could go into the Holy of Holies. The only one on the Day of Atonement, as Leviticus 16 tells us, could sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat to pay for his sins, the family's sins, and also the sins of the entire nation. It was through the offerings that the high priest made that the people were made right with God. You see, the priest is actually this picture of an anointed mediator. He is the means by which the people of God are brought into relationship with their God. He is the, 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 the centerpiece of that. He's the one who offers the sacrifices. He meets with God on the behalf of God's people. In his fellowship with God, the people of God have fellowship with God. That's the very nature of the priest. The uniqueness of his consecration is spoken of in Exodus chapter 30. In fact, you, you could actually get the recipe for this anointing oil. It's pretty remarkable. It has myrrh and cinnamon in it and all kinds of other things, sweet-smelling perfume. And as you can see from the imagery, it was this lavish, fragrant, um, overwhelmingly soothing oil that you could imagine in a dry, dusty climate like the ancient Near East, the time in which the psalm is being written, would be uh, a blessing. As we read it, it just feels really messy, doesn't it? But when you actually think of it in terms of it's a context and being set apart unto holy service, we see that this is what the people of Israel are actually moving towards. Think of where they're going. They're going to the temple. They're going to see the high priest. They're going to sacrifice. They're going to meet with their God through the mediator of God's people. But not only... Is this unity like the precious oil and this anointing of the Holy One who is the high priest? He also says it's like the dew of Mount Hermon. Now Mount Hermon is about a 10,000 foot mountain in the very northern edge of the nation of Israel. It's miles and miles away from Jerusalem. It was known for proverbially heavy dew. 
precipitation, rain, and snow. In fact, it was one of the mountains in the north that would keep snow on it sometimes into the early summer months. Some of the trips that the people of Israel would take, these pilgrimages, these annual feasts, would take them by Mount Hermon on their way to Jerusalem, especially those coming from the north. And it would be a favorite stopover spot, an easy place to be able to find water or or greenery or food on the way. Mount Hermon was considered this kind of lush garden-like temple mountain of the north. It represented that boundary marker in the north. But then notice the way the psalm is written because it's really unusual. Scholars have scratched their heads about what this means. Notice the dew falling on Mount Hermon is not the focus of the text. It is like the dew of Hermon which falls on the mountains of Zion. Okay, now if you know a little bit of your Geography, and if you don't, you might take out a Bible there and even look at the uh, look at the, the the maps in the back. You'll have Mount Hermon there in the north, and you'll see Mount Zion right around Jerusalem. It's really what's referenced as the Temple Mount, where the temple was actually founded, and the mountains around Jerusalem, like the Mount of Olives, for instance, one of Jesus's favorite places to go would be the mountains of Zion. It's miles and miles away from Mount Hermon. It, in many ways, is this more southern border of the people of Israel. And what we're being told here in the text is that the dew that falls on Mount Hermon, or that Mount Hermon is known for, is falling all the way in the south, miles away. You think, what does that mean? What is the psalmist trying to communicate that the dew of Mount Hermon is falling on the mountains of Zion? Well... It seems as if the writer is giving us a parallel here. Do you, do you know the, key, the word that's used most frequently in Psalm 133 is the word down? It's the word down. It is like a precious oil on the head running down on the beard. On the beard of Aaron running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon which falls, which could be translated down would be a faithful falls down on the mountains of Zion. This picture that's being given to us is of things that are high receiving special blessing and that special blessing running all the way down. It's this picture of extravagance, of excess, of abundance. What were these feasts and annual pilgrimages all about? Well, they were festivals. They were times of remembering of abundance of God's kindness and of his blessing. Here's what he's saying about the dew of Mount Hermon. The dew is so strong. The rain is so rich. The precipitation and the lushness of what Mount Hermon represents, it's so abundant that it's flowing all the way down, miles and miles away to Mount Zion. It's filling, as it were, all of Jerusalem. It's an incredible picture of not just the high priest being anointed with oil, but it's as if the whole land of Israel is being anointed with God's presence. As the people of God are coming from the four corners of the nation into the very center place of those mountains of Zion, the temple itself. teaching us something very important about the nature of unity. 
It's teaching us that unity, very simply, is something that doesn't come from us. I can't tell you how many times I've been sitting with that couple or sitting with those family members or sitting with those church members or in that committee meeting and there's tension, there's conflict, there may be layers of resentment and bitterness, but the parties maybe are even beginning to want to learn what it would look like for them to be reconciled. And they're trying, but they can't make their heart get there. And they're still so sensitive and defensive that even their best attempts are easily triggered. And before you know it, the attempt at being reconciled turns into a deeper rupture. It's happened many times. Does it sound like your family? Sounds like a lot of our families, doesn't it? What is this text teaching us about unity? It's telling us that if it's going to come, it's got to come down. It's got to come down. It's got to descend from the heavenlies. It's got to come as a gift from our God to his people. He's got to bring reconciliation. He's got to bring peace. Why is the picture of anointing oil and a high priest? It's a picture that we need a mediator to open up harmony between us and God and open up harmony among the body of Christ. The dew of Hermon falling all the way down to Mount Zion, meaning this water's trickling into the temple. The abundance has got to come out of the temple. It's got to come from the highest places into the lowest places. The blessing's got to spill over, as it were. And it can only do that when the dew of heaven falls. When the dew of heaven falls. This was what the annual feasts were all about. Let's just take Passover, for example. When, when they came on the Feast of Passover singing these songs as they entered into the temple, they were remembering the time in which the Lord came down and protected them. When the death angel entered the camp in Egypt, and was snatching the firstborn of every family who didn't have blood over the doorposts. And they, most certainly fearful, some with faith, many fear, much in fear, waited as that judgment of the Lord passed through Egypt. And God protected their children, their livestock, and were not taken in the judgment that came for Egypt because they sheltered under the blood of the Lamb. And as they're walking, centuries maybe later, from that moment, they're remembering at the Feast of Passover that we are a people, not because we decided to be. We're a people because God made us to be. He has saved us. What unifies you? God saved us. That's the only thing that unifies us. Look at us. We'd never be together if it weren't for that. We'd never be together if it weren't for that. God is who's unified. It's got to come down. It's got to come down. He's got to do it. 
The annual feasts were a reminder that if we're going to experience the kind of unity which the Lord wants for his people, it's got to be a unity that he gives us. And we've got to unify ourselves around the unity that he has given to us. Listen, look around here this morning. These souls right here in this room. Think right now imaginatively of the souls that were in this room in the previous service and in the service before that. Now think again of those joining us via live stream. Now think again of your brothers and sisters in other churches and communities. Now think again of the global church that's happening all over the world. And then think again of throughout history of those who've gone before, of all the people who've been worshiping the Lord and gathered in his presence, most of which don't look like you, don't even have your language, radically different. They would never, ne- would never bring you together. Look around, think, consider. What brings you together with that throng that is greater than anybody could ever number? number? The fact that God has saved us. That's it. God has saved us. I, I couldn't help but just remember today, John 3.16, that wonderful verse, Right? So simple and so profound. For God so loved the world that he gave. Now I want you to think reflectively with me. For God so loved the world that he came down. That he came down. He gave his only son. Who is his son? He's our high priest. Anointed for the service of being our mediator. Between God and man. He gave his only son. That Listen to this. That whosoever believes. Did you catch that? Whosoever. Not white. Not black. Not male. Not female. Not slave. Not free. Not those who agree with you about the virus. Not those who agree with you about politics. Not any of those things. Whosoever believes in who? Him. Shall receive the blessing of Zion. What is the blessing of Zion? Look at verse 3. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing. Life forevermore. Should not perish but have Everlasting life. That's who will receive the blessing of Zion. Now listen. That's our unity. We've got to be unified in our unity. And we can't try to unify ourselves around the things that we're not to be unified around. Where there's liberty. Where there's difference. The church has got to be unified on the foundation stone that is Christ. He is our cornerstone. And so what I think this text is actually urging us to do is to revel in the fact that you're already unified. How good and pleasant it is when brothers and sisters dwell together in unity. You're all unified in Christ. As I look at you, I see the flowing of the anointing of the Holy Spirit who has fallen on you and now dwells within you because Jesus did what? He ascended. Because he took a road to Jerusalem, the greater Jerusalem, and then descended through the power of the Holy Spirit. He now dwells within you. You're all temples 
of the Holy Spirit. Beautiful pictures of the fruitfulness and the sacredness of the salvation that has come now in Christ to all people. We have to share in the unity of that that unifies us. Listen, this was Jesus' prayer. In John 17, you know, his final prayer before his betrayal and arrest. He says, as you sent me into the world, Father, so I am sending them into the world. He came down. Now he's sending us out on mission. For their sake, I consecrate myself. Notice that language. It's a language of priesthood. For their sake, I've consecrated myself so that they may be consecrated or sanctified in the truth. What's he calling you? priest. He's saying you're a priest. You can commune with God by virtue of the mediatorship of the Lord Jesus Christ. I've consecrated them in the truth. I do not ask only for them, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. So what's he anticipating you to do as priests? To go and share the unity that you have found in Christ. And for us to be a community that attracts those who are being wooed by the power of the Holy Spirit and the gospel into relationship with God and one another. I pray also for those who are going to hear of me through their word. Why is he so interested in this? Why is he focused on this? Here's his purpose. That they may all be one. That's what he wants. Utter oneness. Utter oneness. Friends, this is the kind of unity that the Lord is calling us to. We're going to end up in days and times. I'm no prophet or a son of a prophet, but we're going to end up in times of division in our culture, in our community at large. You recognize that, right? It's very, very normal. It's very common. Shouldn't take you by surprise. Don't get caught up in it. Don't get caught up in it. Be unified in what unifies us. Let's, let's don't try to unify and focus on our unity over things that the Bible's not said is our unifying force. Don't let those things divide us. Let's don't get caught up in it. Let's keep the first things the first things. Following the Lord Jesus Christ and being founded in Him. And as we do so, I think what well, begins to happen well, I think we begin to see the beauty of the gospel take place. You see, that's actually what has happened in Christ. Because he, on a little mountain outside of Jerusalem, ascended. It's called Golgotha, called Calvary. And there he fulfilled his anointing, his holy service. And in his holy service, he was making a mediatorship, a dwelling place for God and man, reconciling us. But notice how he did it. By taking on all of our sinful conflicts. When we decided to make things that were not priorities, priorities. And divided over foolishness. Rather than around the faithfulness of the truth. He died for that. He died for that. And that is why on the cross, what you see is a terrible conflict. 
Because it is the conflict that ends all conflicts. Do you see, what are the hills that you die on? If they are the things of this world, my friends, they're not worth dying on. The hill worth dying on. The Savior has already died on. And let's don't create other hills to die on. Let's hold fast to the Savior who's died on that hill. And let's walk by the light of his truth. Father in heaven, we would ask right now that you would take these truths and you'd begin to weave them transformatively into our hearts and lives. And you'd begin to unify us around what unifies us. And Lord, that you would give us the wisdom of the Spirit. The wisdom of the Spirit helps us see what's worth fighting for and what's not. And Lord, we need the wisdom to know in our day and time what we need to let go of. That's not the deal. It's not the heel to die on. And Lord, give to this congregation, give to your people, give to your church at large a spirit that recognizes where unity can be found and stay there. Live there and relate from there. Let us share in unity that which we share in unity. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.